Well, good morning. Great to see you guys here also online. Summer is upon us. How's your summer reading list doing? Now, if you don't have a summer reading list, I'll give you six books right away to put on them. It's uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. If you've never read them, you're saying, six books? I haven't read six books in my lifetime. Well, you know, these are six children's books, and they are profound. They're simple but profound, written by C.S. Lewis, one of the great apologists of the 20th century. And uh, they are, so they're, they're about the, the adventures of some children from England at different, six different points in time when they're transported to this land of Narnia that is ruled by the, the Christ figure, the lion named Aslan. So I thought since we're in the midst of the summer, uh, you're not going to go to the library for any summer reading time. So how about a little summer reading right here, okay? No? You want me to read a little bit? I've read you portions of this before. I'm going to read you the whole thing. It's about, not the whole book, but this whole section. So it's about Jill and a little boy named Eustace Scrub, and C.S. Lewis said, unfortunately, that really was his name. They get transported to Narnia and immediately are separated in a pretty traumatic event. And now Jill is lost. She's running. She's exhausted. She's afraid. But more than anything, she's thirsty. The wood was so still that it was not difficult to decide where the sound was coming from. It grew clearer every moment, and sooner than she expected, she came to an open glade and saw the stream, bright as glass, running along the turf a stone's throw away from her. But although the sight of the water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she did not rush forward to drink. She stood as still as if she had been turned into stone with her mouth wide open. And she had a very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay the lion. It lay with its head raised and its two forepaws out in front of it, like the lion's in Trafalgar Square. And she knew at once that it had seen her, for its eyes looked straight into hers for a moment and then turned away, as if it knew her quite well and didn't think much of her. If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment, thought Jill. But if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she had tried, and she couldn't take her eyes off it. How long this lasted, she couldn't be sure. It seemed like hours. And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt she would not mind being eaten by the lion, if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. If you're thirsty, you may drink. They were the first words she had heard since Eustace had spoken to her on the edge of the cliff. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken, and then the voice said it again. If you're thirsty, come and drink. And of course, she remembered what Eustace had said about animals talking in that other world and realized that it was the lion speaking. Anyway, she had seen its lips move this time, and the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper and wilder and stronger sort of heavy golden voice, and it did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in a rather different way. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could, could, could I, would you mind going away while I do take a drink, said Jill. 
The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to, not to do anything to me if I do come and drink, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? Jill asked. I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. Well, I dare not come and drink then, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. The sooner a human being grasps that simple truth, the healthier that human being will become. That of all of the mirages that present themselves on the desert floor of our lives as capable of quenching our thirst, there is no other stream. What Lewis was doing through Aslan the Lion is encapsulating the, the heartbeat of the gospel, the invitation that Jesus gives for us to be renewed in terms of who we are as human beings. It's why Jesus said in John 10.10, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy to diminish you. I've come to flourish you. I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. That's po- not positive mental attitude. It's not some self-actualization or self-improvement. It's a restoration of our humanity to, to the original purpose that it's meant for. Which is why our vision here at Northland is engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. It's engaging people to come and be renewed at that only water source on the desert floor of our lives. And as a result of that being our vision, we're letting one of Jesus' disciples mentor us over a few months and even years here. As we're going through John's gospel. He's the last living apostle. He was not martyred, only apostle not to be martyred. And he's writing about the heartbeat of the gospel, that statement that Jesus makes, I've come that you might have life and, and, and have it to the full. And so John writes this with that in mind, and that's why we're calling this series Awaken. Because that's what the gospel is. It's not about becoming religious. It's about awakening to our humanity. It's about understanding that who we are as human beings are people that we don't need religion. We need life. Sorry, I just saw these. These were back in the kitchen. And there's something about salting crackers. You know, you can have all your wheat thins and your basil, honey, pepper-crusted, peppercorn-laced, kale Things, but there is nothing like a saltine, just a plain old saltine cracker. They're awesome, but when you eat one, 
you get a little thirsty. <laughs> and so you just eat another one. And when you eat another one, you become aware that you're getting even more needful of something else besides a cracker. <laughs> Thank you, KFED. But it's amazing how we as human beings, instead of going for the water, we just go for another cracker and another one and another one. And as we're taking this journey through John's gospel, we are, I might add, going at a blistering pace. We're already at the end of chapter four. We'll be, we've taken some breaks and we will continue periodically. In fact, we'll be taking a break during August and September, talking about a little bit of what I'll start addressing this morning. And I'll tell you about it a little bit later. But in chapter four, we're finishing up chapter four today. This whole notion of thirst comes into play with that woman by the well. Jesus is traveling from Judea at, the, at the, the southern end of Palestine to Galilee, his home where he grew up, and he has to go through Samaria. Instead of going around as others did, as we've talked about, he goes through Samaria, through the land of these people that the Jews despise, struck a, a conversation with a woman about water and thirst. And in verse 10 of John chapter 4, he says, Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. A couple of verses later, Jesus continues his dialogue with us. She says something to him, and he responds. He answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. He said, so whoever goes after the temporary fix, basically what you do is you just go after another cracker, and that delays your thirst. It really camouflages it. Because every perceived source of water on the desert floor of my life, unless it's Jesus, is a mirage. But we always think just one more cracker should do it. We all think we have these ideas, what will satisfy my soul thirst? Maybe it's a bank account balance. So we reach that balance, not enough to quench our thirst. So what do we do? We eat another cracker. Let's get another few dollars in. Maybe it's a, um, a particular home we move in after a while. You know what? We need to have a better home, maybe a vacation, better vacation, better job, better friends, better family. The, the list goes on and on. And we're constantly going from, from cracker to cracker to cracker. And the thirst stays there. And Jesus gives that woman an invitation. He says, come and drink. Why don't we? What is the, the, the hesitation? And as John finishes up chapter 4, 
he gives us a little bit of insight into some, at least for me, what causes me. Even the first time I come and take a drink of this living water is really the equivalent, metaphorically speaking, of coming to Christ. But that doesn't stop the tendency to go to other mirages, to, to go gobble up other crackers, to think, well, maybe if I can get a few more saltines in me, it will, it will distract me. So there's a, it's a daily choice to come and drink, but I'm tethered. I'm I'm held back. So what we're going to do today is talk a little bit about three obstacles that come up in a passage right at the end of John. Now, let me read to you uh, what happened right before this passage that we're going to look at today. If you've got your Bible, take it out. If you don't own a Bible, you can pick one up at our, as our gift at, back at the, at the Welcome Center. But in John chapter 4, verse 42, uh, these Samaritans said to the woman, so what happened? She did take a drink of water. She received Jesus. She went and told everybody else. They came and they said, we no longer believe just because of what you said, but we've now heard it for ourselves. We've had a drink of water for ourselves. We know that this man really is the savior of the world. So that's where John goes. He says, in this land, remember, geography makes a difference in understanding this, going from Judea, stronghold of Judaism, especially uh, the religious Judaism, and also the Galilee right there, going through Samaria, where people are not of the, the, of the caliber as the Jews would say, of the north and the south. It's this in-between land. And yet, John is drawing a picture of how the people in that in-between land are actually getting it, instead of the religious crowd in the south or the north. So Jesus has been in Samaria. Now he's about to move back up to the Galilee. And what I want to do is we go through, starting with verse 43. It's kind of three sections of Scripture. And Letting those speak to us about what is it that holds us back from engaging in this intimacy with Jesus that will be water for our souls. Here's the first obstacle. Actually, you might refer to this as a tether, religiosity. Religiosity holds us back. You said, I thought we've already talked about religiosity. We have. We'll keep talking about it because Jesus does. It's a huge enemy of intimacy. It's a mirage. It's a saltine cracker. People think, I'm thirsty. I'm going to go to church and think, well, that's it. I'll just go to more. I'll do more church. I'll get more religious. Go back to the text for a minute. Start, let's start reading in verse 43. After two days, after the two days he left, and he's leaving Samaria, is what he's referring to there, for Galilee. So remember, he's continuing north, going back up to the really religious crowd. John says, now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So what we don't pick up as quickly in English is a, is the, a word in, it transliterated, it's O-U-N in, in Greek. It's referring to so or therefore, it's connecting. He, that's how he starts what we see is verse 45. So therefore, he arrived in Galilee. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. You, know, you think, well, that's a pretty nice thing. That's awesome. It's irony. They weren't honoring him as Savior of the world like the Samaritans did. Just the previous verse, verse 42, the Samaritans embraced him. These Galileans, they weren't giving him the honor. They weren't acknowledging who he really was. They were just being polite, welcoming him. They were quite a religious bunch. You keep reading. They had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they also had been there. 
What John is doing is indicting, just as Jesus did, is indicting the religious crowd for not embracing the, the living water. It was this irreligious group of people, the Samaritans, that went after the water. The religious people weren't. And as we talked about for a number of weeks about the, the vending machine versus the table of intimacy, religiosity can actually distract us from what we're actually thirsty for. I mean, what do you, what do, you do in your religiosity? There are a number of things involved. One would be we get into the Word, Scripture. So is that a bad thing? Uh, no. But Jesus actually rebuked rebuked some people for studying the Scriptures. It's not for studying the Scriptures, but for the way they were going about it. Look at verse 39 of John chapter 5. You diligently study the Scriptures because you think that by them, this is Jesus speaking, you diligently study the Scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the Scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. A lot of people, you know that phrase, uh, I've, I've heard it, it breaks my heart, but it's actually an accurate phase, phrase, that person got religion. You don't hear it as much anymore, but uh, hey, that person, he's, done, he's got himself some religion, which is a tragic statement because it's me getting religion instead of a relationship. It's me moving into religious practices. And again, Jesus is not saying anything bad about Bible study itself, but he's saying the purpose for, the, for my word, it's breathed by me, and it's to lead you to intimacy with me to give you life. One of the most dangerous things that you can hear said about the word of God when people are studying it. And those of you who are in small groups and hope more and more of you get involved in community around the Word of God, and we need to eat His words. But here's a dangerous phrase. That's interesting. Read this. Huh, that's interesting. As if it's a textbook. I had a conversation this past week with somebody about a seminary professor we knew of from another part of the country, nowhere near here, who's, who says he's not a, he's not a believer but he studies the Scriptures. How about other religious practices doing what we're doing here, gathering for worship? Matthew chapter 15, verse 8 and 9, Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. As a result, their teachings are, are merely human rules. So we think, you know what, I'm thirsty, I better go to church, better read the, the Scriptures. Nothing appears to be wrong with either of those statements. In fact, both of those statements are accurate when we go deep enough with them. But if I'm merely reading the Scriptures to see what's religiously interesting, and if I'm going to church merely to fulfill a ritualistic habit, it's going to tether me from my soul's thirst being quenched. Religious behavior in Matthew 23, Jesus rebukes the disciples, uh, rebukes the Pharisees saying, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you're looking pretty good, but on the inside, you're like the, the, the bones of the dead. You're right there, but it's surface. I don't know if you've read about or some of you remember Mount St. Helens, the volcano in America that erupted, what was it, 40 years ago, up in Washington. 
enormous explosion could be heard up to 600 miles away, registered on, by seismologists 600 miles away. People could hear it for hundreds of miles. But what was, as the story developed, what became a little shocking is people that were right there, I mean, some perished, but there are others that were hiking or fishing, but they were, they were right at the bottom of, of, of the volcano. They heard nothing. It was silent. And seismologists and geologists explained the reason for that was the sound went up, bounced off the atmosphere, and then headed out away. And the result was some of these people, like this one guy I read about, he was fishing in a lake right there at the foot of the mountain. He, got, he heard none of the explosion that everybody else did. He saw it starting to get dark, had no idea what was going on when res- rescuers came to get him out of there. And the geologists referred to it as what was going on as the zone of silence. They were so close, they didn't hear anything. Sometimes in our religious practices, we get so close. But we don't get to the intimacy of the living water, the life of the gospel. We focus so much on getting getting all of the religious practices down. But Jesus says on the inside, we're, we're lifeless. We're not experiencing that life. In Long Beach, California, there is a hotel that's on the water. It's called the Queen Mary. It was the ship, the Queen Mary, that reigned the seas for seven decades, I think it was. Back 30 years ago, 25, 30 years ago, came to rest in Long Beach. They'd retired it from from its seagoing journeys and turned it into a hotel. And, as they, and you can still go today. You can just, it's just like booking a regular hotel. You can go in and stay in one of the staterooms. If you want to go on a cruise, but you get seasick, this is probably your perfect solution. So, uh, but when they were refurbished it, they took the three smokestacks down on the top, and these gi- ginormous smokestacks, and the steel, when they took them down, and start, the steel c- crumbled. What was holding those three smokestacks together was the 30 coats, they estimated up to 30 coats of paint that had been applied over the years. So there was nothing substantive inside, it was just a veneer on the outside. And I can be impressively religious, but also lifeless at the same time. There's a second tether. Let's keep going through the text. First thing that sometimes holds me back is, is my religiosity. I'm just talking about you. I'm talking about me. I do some of this for a living. It's dangerous. But it's not just that. There's a second thing that tethers me from actually in experiencing the intimacy with Him, the living water, and that's uh, my pain. Our pain can be an obstacle to quenching our thirst. I go back to the text, and there's a guy that was an official in the king's court, probably Herod Antipas. Um, wasn't necessarily a Gentile. Some people confuse this with the centurion who came with great faith and said, I, you know, I trust you, Jesus. Uh, heal my son. 
This guy is different. This guy's desperate. He ends up believing that after the fact, he's not coming to Jesus because he trusts him and he loves him and has a relationship. He just wants his son to be fine. And I can identify with that. So can any parent. Read the text. Once more he visited Canaan, Galilee, verse 46, John 4, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick in Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Now, this guy traveled, it's probably about 20 miles. He's desperate. As a parent, I can relate with that. Jesus said something puzzling. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told them, you will never believe. The royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. And I'm going to read verse 50 so you can relax for a minute because it seems very insensitive what Jesus said. Well, hear what he says. Jesus replied, you may go, your son will live. But I want you to go back to that earlier statement. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you'll never believe. He's rebuking not just that man, but everyone else. For what? Okay, here we go. True or false? The world is fallen. True. True or false, the world can be painful. The older we get, the more we realize that. The amount of pain present in this room right now is astronomical. It's just the reality of living in a fallen world. It creates in us a desire to put above all else a desire for the pain to go away. And it leads us into dangerous territory. This guy is not coming for a relationship. He's not coming for intimacy. He's not coming for Christ's teaching. He just wants his son to be okay. And you're saying, wait a minute, what's wrong with that? Nothing wrong with that. Until I let my pain management become more important than Jesus. I can cloak it however I want, but if I'm... I'm holding on to my pain in such a way and saying, what's most important in my life right now is for my pain to go away. I'm missing the purpose for which Jesus came. Does Jesus care about my pain and yours? Of course. He healed the man's son. He healed tons of people. But he also says in John 16, verse 33, you hear me quote it a lot, in this world you will have trouble. Take heart, though, I've overcome the world. The, the power of my living water is being able to take heart. It's not immunity. We would prefer exemption from pain over intimacy with Jesus if we were actually exposed. And Jesus says, all that will be It's delaying because there's going to be more pain after that and more pain after that. Uh, trapeze bars, remember seeing them in the circus or on, the, on movies about the circus. You've got a trapeze bar, flying trapeze, holds on to that. The easy way to go is when he grabs this, uh, this one bar and then the next one swings and takes it. And you've got both in w at one time and then lets go of that one and goes here. The scary ones are when he swings around, lets go of that one before he, holds, he grabs hold of this other bar. 
there's an aspect where Jesus says, will you trust me enough to let go of your pain and come to me? Now, we will talk about your pain. We will deal with it. But my ultimate mission is not taking your pain away. It's bringing life back to the cosmos. Now, end result will be no more pain, no more tears. But that is not now. And so many people from a religious context, when the pain doesn't go away, they say it's not working. It's as if we treat Jesus as a talisman, as a good luck charm, as a genie, and we say, man, if I can get the religiosity and rub the bottle in just the right way, the pain will go away. And you need to know, I'm I'm trembling. If you were close enough to me or put your hand on me, you would feel it. I am that nervous right now because I don't want any of you to misunderstand what I'm saying. Because I know there's tons of pain present here, and Jesus cares about every aspect, every sickness, every financial crisis, every marital crisis. Uh, So there's not a callousness towards that. But it's a matter of saying, I need to approach my pain in this direction from a relationship instead of saying, I'm bringing my pain to Jesus because what, what that lo- ends up looking like is me saying, Jesus, just do this for me. We're not interested in any type of relationship. And so Jesus, right now I ask that you would cover this place with an awareness. Everybody here has got moments this past week that have been fallen moments of vulnerability. May they know that you wept over Lazarus. You care about our pain. But what you told this man is what you tell us. These people are not going to trust me until their pain goes away. Now thankfully that man didn't stay in that category. There's a third tether, though, that keeps me from the living water. It's plenty more, but these are three that come out in this text. One's our religiosity, another's our pain, a third is our skepticism. In this last section, you see a journey where this man goes from just somebody who's heard about Jesus and saying, man, I'm going to try this, nothing else is working, to actually coming to, to faith In verse 50, Jesus replied, you may go, your son will live. And the man took Jesus at his word and departed. And while he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. And then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and all his household believed. Now, they hadn't belie- he didn't go to Jesus because he was a believer. This happened, and it was enough for him to move from skepticism to faith. My religiosity becomes very important to me. It's a source of pride. But it's not going to quench my thirst. My desire for pain li- relief is... is, is is natural and it's appropriate, but no matter how much of my pain is relieved, I'm not, it's not the same as intimacy with Jesus. I got questions 
So do you. In fact, now I have more questions now than I had when I trusted Christ. It's kind of like I was talking about with somebody this week at, at, at lunch. The, 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 the parameters of my ignorance have expanded with the boundaries of my knowledge. What I mean by that is the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. The more you grow, the more you realize how vulnerable you are, etc. Now, my confidence has deepened at the core essentials, but I got so many more questions. And a lot of times, we don't want Jesus, we want answers. How many answers will be enough? John chapter 12, verse 37. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, if you were there, a lot of times I've said, you know, when grappling, we said, oh, well, if I could just see Jesus do one of those, man, that'd be, that'd be good. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs, and he's, John's making a very specific point, in their presence, they still would not believe in him. Even after. Answers is not what I ultimately need. It's intimacy with him. His ultimate mission is paired with my ultimate need. And my ultimate need is not perfecting my religiosity or being free from pain or even having all the answers. My ultimate need is to be restored into an intimate relationship with Him. What this is is John 17 verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you and the one whom you've sent may have an intimate walk with the Father. And it's from this intimacy that I began to deal with the, the questions. It's from the intimacy that I began to, to deal with the pain. It's some of, out of this, from this intimacy, I began to engage with the spiritual practices. But it's very different approaching those from the context of having my thirst addressed as opposed to saying, I'm going to get my thirst addressed through my religiosity, through my pain relief or medication, and through my answers. He says, this is eternal life. Knowing, knowing me. Eternal life is not having a good religious experience and not having my pain go away and not having all the answers. Does he care about those things? Yeah, especially the last two. But he wants to deal with them in the context of intimacy. And it's this that we'll be talking about during August and September. What's that look like, that intimacy? But right now, I'm going to ask our worship team to come out. And we're going to give you four minutes that you can waste, or they could be four life-changing minutes. And once you say, Jesus, my religiosity has become a source of pride, my pain has become a source of bitterness. My questions have become a source 
of paralysis. I know you don't want me to ignore them, but what you want first is to relate with me. So would you be small enough to hear me in this moment? Let's pray. Jesus, you know the thirst that's present here. You know our human tendencies to come up with solutions to our soul thirst. May we trust you. Not throwing around $10 answers to million-dollar questions. Not being oversimplistic but simply relating with you where we are in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our questions, but not seeing our pain relief or answers to questions being what will ultimately satisfy our thirst, but understanding it's you. And from that well of living water, engaging. Give us the courage right now to be still, And know that you're God and know that you want to know us.